0: Today is July 10th, 2014, and my guest is D.G. Myers. He is a literary critic, author, and he is dying of cancer. That combination makes this episode of EconTalk a little out of the ordinary. David, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Glad to be here, Mr.
0: Roberts. Now, I invite you to be a guest after I read your remarkable essay, The Mercy of Sickness Before Death, which is about what it's like to be a terminal cancer patient. And I believe that that essay and the lessons of, of that essay tell us something important related to economics. I'm, we're going to get to that. But I want to start with your medical situation. When were you diagnosed and what was the nature of the diagnosis?
1: As I wrote in my most recent Pathios essay, which was retitled by my editor, Quitting the Cancer Battle, my original title was New Hope for the Dying, I was first diagnosed around the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. Which is in the fall of 2007. I was in the good medical habit of getting a routine physical examination every year, partly on the understanding that a man my age and I was only 55 in 2007 was protected against prostate cancer by an annual physical. Nevertheless, my physician discovered what he called an opacity on my chest X-ray. Doctors are are wonderful for avoiding what the cancer memoirist Christina Middlebrook calls the stink words. So he he wouldn't commit himself to to anything that might make my my nose wrinkle. But he found an opacity, he told me, on my chest X-ray. And this happened just before... The the Chag, the holiday of Sukkot, so I, I couldn't schedule a visit with him to uh, to get a biopsy uh, for a couple for three days, and those, as you might imagine, were were three dreadful days for me and my family. Um, biopsy showed uh, that I had metastatic prostate cancer that had spread. To my uh, right ischium, which is uh, right under the pelvis, uh, a left rib, and uh, some lymph nodes. Um, and what did you what did you do? Uh,
0: what have, what's been your medical response to that? And we'll talk. we'll, to, we'll talk about your I, emotional response in a minute. But what's been your What was the medical? response? Well, immediately,
1: response? immediately, my I, I was put under the care of a brilliant oncologist. At, uh, in Baylor College of Medicine by the name of Rush Lynch, uh, Rush went to high school with Janice Joplin, a detail I always have to include when I mention Rush.
0: That's important.
1: Uh, and, uh, Rush got, put me under uh, chemotherapy, um, immediately and the, the chemo, and then also he had the, the theory though so no urologist would go along with this, but fortunately we found a radiation oncologist who would. He was under the theory that if he destroyed my prostate, he might possibly cure me of it. And for three years that worked. So for three years, hormone treatments, the, uh, the, irradi- the irradiation of my prostate, and the chemotherapy it seemed as if it had cured me but then um it turned out just to be a remission the cancer came back full strength um spread from my right lcm throughout my right hip and destroyed it and um we uh, by this time I had moved to Columbus Ohio we went through the drugs that were available i have exhausted them now now i'm on palliative care and it's just a matter of time and what's the
0: expected time
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Officially, my prognosis is six months to two years. Uh, But it was that last fall when I began my current regimen of chemotherapy. And so far, I've had 12 cycles on the same drug when my oncologist was expecting only four or five. So nine months later, my prognosis is still six months to two years you can never tell with with a cancer like mine because i could i could the the drug can fail at any time and then there's also the question of when life no longer has enough quality to live most cancer patients actually make the decision at some point to withdraw care and let the cancer take its course i obviously haven't reached that but that's what complicates the question of a prognosis.
0: So you write about in that that it's a two part essay. We're going to talk about both parts, but in the first part, uh, you, you write about cancer as merciful, which is an unusual word that people don't associate with cancer. Uh, explain.
1: It's a difficult one because I'm not sure that I have the words for it. Partly because my literary instincts are to avoid cliché and sentimentality, but. I'm a religious Jew, an Orthodox Jew, who is accustomed to thanking God, or as we Orthodox Jews call him, Hashem, for everything that occurs in my life. One of the miraculous details is that my wife discovered that she was pregnant with our fourth child, our only daughter, Miriam, whom we call Mimi. The exact same day I was diagnosed with cancer. And I've always thus seen Hashem's hand in my cancer and assumed that I, he wanted me to have this for some reason. So in one sense, I've always been grateful because this strikes me as Hashem's Plan for, I gotta hate that word. I don't think he plotted it out, but, but the history he wanted for me. And for me as a writer and a teacher, it has been merciful in giving me the matchless opportunity to educate people about what it is like to live with cancer. As you know from my essays, I am hardly sparing in my criticisms of the way our culture treats cancer. And if I can contribute to a rethinking of how we talk about cancer and how we look upon cancer patients, notice I always call them patients and never sufferers because those who have cancer are not victims, then I, I I really believe that the cancer will have been merciful, and will have been. I will have borne out my sense that that Hashem gave me this for a reason.
0: Well, I'm sure that's comforting, and I I uh, I found what I found inspiring and moving about your essay was the economics in it for me, uh, which was. I once had a student who told me that economics is the study of how to get the most out of life. She'd heard that from another professor. She couldn't remember who it was. Very
1: interesting. And I've
0: always found that to be a profoundly um, comforting description of of my field, which can be often seen as a rather dreary form of uh, financial planning at its worst level. But I always see economics as a lens for thinking about life and the choices we make. Most of them, many of those choices are illuminated in economic thinking. That are related to to financial decisions, but many of them are not and um, we recently on this program talked about Gary Becker, who extended economics to many areas that are not traditionally thought of as economic questions, mm-hmm. marriage crime, etc. but the simplest way to think about it is that economics really focuses often on what economists call opportunity costs, what I give up to do something what 's my next best alternative. And sometimes it's if I buy something, what could I have bought instead? If I take this job, what job did I not take instead? But it also includes who did I marry and thereby not marry? And most importantly, and this is coming back to your essay, how do I spend my time and uh, what did I not spend my time on as a result of that decision? And your essay reminded me of how easy it is to waste what I think of as our most precious resource, which is not oil <laughs> but time because it's that very is, scarce. That is the-
1: that's exactly true, and I have two examples of that. The first is that I was trained as a literary theorist and actually pursued the philosophical refutation of many literary theorists. I was also a literary historian, and I was writing a book when I was diagnosed with cancer called Battle Cry of Theory. It was going to be a history of theories, invasion of American English departments. But when I was diagnosed, I put that book aside, partly because I did not want to spend my last weeks reading <laughs> Jonathan Culler and, and Harold Bloom. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I, I, I found what I did instead was an economic decision though I never would have perceived it at the time. It was economic. It was clearly economic. I, I I started keeping a book blog and started doing what I had done years and years ago when I'd first become a writer. I mean, I'm talking about when, when I was in my early 20s. I returned to reviewing books. And I, because I wasn't interested in writing begging letters to editors, I just started reviewing books on my blog, which led to a job at Commentary Magazine as their fiction critic and all sorts of opportunities to become a a public literary critic, which has proven to be, I'm much more influential as a writer now than I ever was in my days when I was a critic of criticism. The second is, and it's, it's not unrelated to that, but uh, this is more, more global and part of my advice to cancer patients. It's the idea of the bucket list. When we realize that we have a limited amount of time, the question arises, w- w- what have I been wanting to do and been unable to do? But when you have cancer, you realize that there are limits placed even on that. So for example, I, as a Jew, I've, I have never visited the state of Israel. And, of course, have have longed to for many years. But with my hip now, I, I can't travel that far. So I had to make the choice to give up that dream and to focus on smaller dreams. So as as I've said publicly several times now, my bucket list consists of books I haven't read. And I, I, I urge cancer patients to reduce the scope of their bucket list. Spending time with their kids. My uh, my kids, when after I'm dead, are not going to care that they didn't get to go to Israel with me. They are going to care that I didn't spend more time with them. And in that sense, I'm, in exactly Becker's sense, I think I've made a a, a deter a determined a self conscious economic decision in the light of my cancer.
0: And the other part of that, um, I. I'm a big fan of Adam Smith's uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments and uh, just finished a book on it actually. And Smith, uh, when you read that book, he forces you to think about, to be mindful. And the, the idea of mindfulness, the idea that you should pay attention to how you spend your time and how you go through life uh, seems to me one of the most valuable lessons, an incredibly difficult one to learn, and I think one of the – one of the virtues of, of your essay and a number of other related uh essays and writings I may mention, certainly we'll put links up to, is that you need to be reminded uh that your life is finite. You need to be reminded that that times with your kids are precious. You you'd think you wouldn't need to be. One of the things I read just after or just before, I can't remember, your essay is a remarkable essay that Helen Keller wrote in 1933, where she writes about what she would do if she could see for three days. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I have been blessed to see for six decades almost, right. for my case and yours, right around there. And how often do we savor it? How often do we appreciate it? And what she writes about what she would want to look at is, um, it's a lesson in mindfulness. And that right. seems to be an incredibly important okay. lesson.
1: It's, it, it's one that, uh, however, I think is impossible to impart. <laughs> yeah, I've I, seriously. I I was always very active and athletic, and I coached uh, little league, coached flag football, loved having boys that I could play catch with, and now there are all sorts of things because of my hip I can't do. I can't run. I can't do one of the things that was most that I love the most: ride a bike. I can't get on a bike. Anymore. I could probably write it if I could get on, though how I could ever get off in a panic stop is, is beyond me. But I, 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 look at people running and I don't feel envy so much as I want to say to them, do you realize how lucky you are? Please, please value these, these moments that you can run because inevitably, whether it's cancer or old age, there's, they're going to be, become a time when you can't. I just read today. That Linda Ronstadt, I had known this. Did you know this? Has Parkinson's disease? I did not. And, no. and she cannot sing anymore? I did I, not.
0: What a tragedy. You, not for,
1: I, I, it, for and, me. And yet,
0: not for me. I mean, I like her. She's done her great work. No, and I enjoy no. her songs, but tragedy for Russ, her.
1: <laughs> no, Russ, I think it's a tragedy for us, and I'll bet she is not experiencing it as a tragedy.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: My wife is encouraging me. My wife is a physician, a pediatric cardiologist. My wife encourages me to stop describing what I have as a life threatening illness. She says the proper term is life limiting. Now what she as a physician means is that the expected duration of my life now has a limit. But I love the phrase because the things I can do have also been limited by my disease. And your point is we all really have life-limiting conditions, and we're just not aware of them. Oh yes, it, becoming mindful of those would be would be merciful. But I, I, I'm afraid it may be impossible.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, it takes a, it's a question of focus. Uh, Gary Wells wrote a wonderful book, uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg, and in the beginning of that book, he talks about the late 19th century habit custom of visiting cemeteries as a form of uh, character development. Right. And that's part of what we're talking about, that uh, it's not a bad thing to be aware that your gift of time is finite. And yet it strikes me that your attitude uh, toward cancer and the 19th century visiting of cemeteries is extremely at odds with the current American culture, which celebrates youth and uh, the word cancer is not really a, a word people like to even hear. It's one of those stink words. Right. Um, so, what kind of reaction have you gotten from um, your lack of sentimentality and your refusal to indulge in hope? Uh, you, you point out that hope is not what most people with cancer need. They need honesty so that they can savor and enjoy and, and use their time. Just like all of us, we're all dying.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think well, of this? Are, what yeah, kind yeah, there, of there.
0: what kind of reaction have you gotten to this to this attitude?
1: except maybe for for one comment to my latest essay which was later partially retracted by the author i get two reactions one is and these are these are from the, the people i love most are ex- expressions of of gratitude and and admiration which of course is wonderful a wonderful flattery for my ego um but by far the widest reaction i get is utter silence my own sister did not say anything to me anything at all to me about cancer for the first 5 years of my living with the disease um it's amazing the friends who who disappear
0: yeah it's politic- yeah i understand
1: that I can imagine. the uh, and the, the 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 stupid things that people say to you <laughs> yeah uh, i can imagine my, that too <laughs> my my appearance is is so incredibly altered i've i've, I've dropped uh, 40 pounds i was up I weighed about 170 now I weigh about 130 um and i've lost all my hair and of course i can't walk straight uh, and it's, but, you know, so people come up insensitively and say, well, what happened to you? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I've, I, Or when I'm with my children. Now, I'm an older father anyway, but you know, I, I look a good 15 years older than I really am. People constantly come up and say, oh, how wonderful that your grandkids are with you. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I want to say to them, I, I, it's, I'm not their grandfather. I'm dying of cancer. That's why I look this way. But...
0: <laughs> <laughs> which 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 would they would easily swallow and, and say oh I'm so you know that that would um they wouldn't know what to say
1: right uh, but it's it's pervasive throughout the culture the example I've been using recently is the death of the great Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn Tony Gwynn died recently uh, just last month yep, of magnificent salivary gland cancer magnificent hitter. he was a great ball player and, and a great man. He had salivary gland cancer for four and a half years. Uh, I don't know about you. I was unaware of that fact.
0: I, I did not know it either.
1: Every fa- every article about Gwen's death quite rightly celebrated his prowess on the ball field and what a- what a wonderful man he was. The last four and a half years of his life disappeared from all the accounts. The only thing they ever said was they had a four and a half year quote battle with cancer. And you know how much I hate that word battle. Yeah, we'll talk about um, that too. My, my, well, one second. Just let me finish this about Gwyn. Yeah, so, go ahead. so you know the, uh, the, his experience of it. He continued to coach baseball at San Diego State. How did it affect his coaching? What did it do to his religious faith? How did it alter his relationship with his wife? All of this went unsaid, and it just disappeared into one word: battle. Now as you know, I, I, I hate that word. I think it is one of the lies our culture tells. I hate it for several reasons. One, as I suggest, it's a way of cloaking in invisibility the experience of men and women who must live with the cancer for several years. But I also hate it because it imply, it's, it's a lie about the control a patient has over his cancer. There's really nothing that a cancer patient can do to fight his cancer. His oncologist can fight it. The drugs he takes can fight the disease. And I know there's some research that suggests that a good attitude helps. But far more important, I think, is for a cancer patient to fight for the truth about his disease, to fight his doctors to level with him. To fight to assume responsibility for his disease, to make choices how to spend his time, what treatment options to pursue and which to forego. You know, there are, there are ones that I've decided against because the side effects are just too onerous. That's the way in which a cancer patient can fight, but, but she's not fighting the disease. She's fighting for people to be honest with her and for allow her still to be a full functioning, responsible grown-up.
0: Yeah, no, it's an infantilizing uh, phenomenon I, I think and it, uh, it's so ubiquitous, the, the, the fight, battle, uh, struggle uh, terminology. And I think it's our way of ennobling a, um, something, as you, as you say, we really don't want to face – uh, don't want to think about and don't want to look at. As you say, people – you talk about friends who disappear. I'm sure people literally look away because they're uncomfortable with the fact that exactly. you don't look the way you used to look.
1: Exactly. I, it's – it's when I, when I go to shul, when I go to synagogue, it is uh, – and I can't do that very often because I have to be pushed in a wheelchair now. But it is – it is amazing. You know, there, are, there are those of my friends who come over and ask him if I'm having a good day or a bad day. If there's anything they can get me, do I need a book? And then, right there, are those who who just pretend I'm not there.
0: Yeah, well, we do that with not just cancer patients. Uh, what's interesting to me is that is that our culture in America is built around uh, this concept of tolerance and yet there is a large set of categories which is mainly a good thing i believe but I, and yet we have lots of categories that we don't tolerate we just pretend don't exist and that uh Ill, people who are ill people who are crazy uh, are diagnosed as crazy or perceived as crazy uh we just uh pretend they're not there uh that they don't exist we don't look at them on the on the subway we don't look at them in our in our on our streets uh we just kind of shut down and just hope right, it goes they- away
1: Right. Ralph Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is still relevant for our times. I actually think less of tolerance than you do because I think there's a a hair's breadth difference between tolerance and indifference. I I just wrote a piece for the Image Journal in which I argued that religious people – uh, literary and religious people in the twenty first century have to abandon tolerance for what I call multilingualism. We have to learn to speak one another's theological language. I think we have to start having less indifferent tolerance and more direct caring about those who are differ, those who are different from us, and. I, I, Cancer is, a, I think a perfect example of what goes on from top to bottom in our culture. You say that, that the, the fight metaphor, and I think you're absolutely right, is a way of trying to ennoble something we really don't want to think about. But of course, it, it can't be ennobling if it's false. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I don't want to be, I don't want to be ennobled. I, I, I want to, I want the reality of me to be acknowledged the same as as any other person does
0: i think the tragedy is because of our uh emphasis on youth and beauty and superficial appearance uh i think maybe a better way to describe that that linguistic uh, dishonesty is it is an attempt to dignify the undignified and the fact is uh there's nothing undignified about losing your hair uh because of cancer treatment it's not Normal. It's not what you're used to. It's not what you, uh, a friend of yours is accustomed to, right? But right. but it's not indignified. It's just a natural reaction to a, a set of chemicals. But it makes us it so uncomfortable. And it, in our, I think for many of us, and I'm I'm no different, by the way. I'm making it sound like I'm outraged about. It. It's easy for me to conduct this interview over the phone. I've never met you. I don't know you. Uh, I've admired your work over the years. Uh, it, it just Chance that I came across your essay, you know, a week ago, and you were kind enough to agree to talk about what are very, very personal issues. But it is the case that to many of us, people who are sick or troubled-looking, we don't see them as dignified. We don't know them, but we judge the superficial, and as a result, uh, we want to dignify them with the with the struggle motif. And I think it's silly. And as you say, it's well, again, dishonest. I'd-
1: I'd revise what you're saying just slightly. I think that those who use such language are trying to preserve their own dignity and are not concerned at all with the dignity of the, the sick uh, because if if they were – and it's, it is hard. We all know this from, from encounter with anyone who has a physical deformity. I'm sorry. I'm going to call it a physical deformity, even though that's politically incorrect. No, no, but we know how hard it is to to look at such people, yeah. um, and and so we preserve ourselves and our own feelings at the expense of them. And as you said, I was no different until I got the disease. Now it now it just makes me angry.
0: Uh, speaking of anger, I wanted to. Um when I read your essay, one of the things I thought of was the the Dylan Thomas poem, uh, which is, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I thought of your essay as being pretty rage free. Dylan Thomas is talking about working hard, I think when he says rage, I, I, I read that as meaning work really hard at not acting like you're dying and and, and falling into a, into despair or or despondency, or, or worse, apathy, or indifference. Uh, what do you think of that word, and, and how would you describe – I saw your essay as more of a savoring and, and not much rage, but
1: do you feel I, that? I agree. I, I, I'm not a fan of Thomas's poem. I've never been a fan of Thomas. No. He's not, not my, my style. But particularly that poem I think gives the, the wrong note. Now, of course, it's a son talking to a father. And I think my own sons have some of that attitude toward me. And in many ways that I hear Thomas saying, don't go, don't leave me, I need you. Uh, And it's more, and this is not to fault Thomas in any way, but it's more about Thomas than it is about his father. Because my attitude is, is the biblical one. I, I allude to the the choice in Deuteronomy in the last sentences of my essay, the mercy of sickness before death, and that is that we have before us the choice between life and death, and yep. even those who are dying can choose life. Yeah, actually, it,
0: I put that so in my I put that in my uh, first book, uh, that line because I think it is uh, it's one way that I remember to be mindful. It says, exactly. it says choose life. It doesn't mean literally choose between life and death. It means live. Don't live uh, as if you're dead.
1: That and for those of us who are dying, the the more important thing is life rather than the fact that you're about to, to die. Now, as I say, this was a lesson that I was lucky enough the day I was diagnosed since I learned the same day that i was going to be the the father of fourth child and i in i intuited immediately or at least my my sad deluded interpretation of the coincidence was that god was saying no here here's the choice life and death life uh, a new child death you're gonna die of cancer which is the more important my daughter I'm going, to read,
0: uh, I'm going to read a quote from the essay now, <clears throat> and, uh, and I'm going to read a poem that it reminded me of, um, which uh, it's the rare poem that seems to suggest uh, an explicit economics uh, point. So bear with me here for a minute. Absolutely. You write, cancer may be a death sentence, but there are many ways to read the sentence. Resignation is only one of them, and a particularly arrogant one at that because it presumes to know, as it cannot, the outcome in every detail. But if you are ignorant of the suffering that awaits you when you are first diagnosed, you are equally ignorant of the changes that cancer will work in your thinking and emotional life, some of which may even be improvements in old habits of thought and feeling. You may, for instance, become more conscious of time, what once might have seemed like wastes of time, a solitaire game, a television show you would never have admitted to watching, the idle poking around for useless information, may become unexpected sources of joy the low-key celebrations of being alive. The difference is that when you are conscious of choosing how to spend your time, and when you discover that you enjoy your choices, they take on a meaning they could never have had before. You no longer waste or mark time, you fill it because now you can see the brim from where you are lying. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it reminded me, obviously it illustrates the point we've been making uh, about mindfulness and, and being aware of your choices, but reminded me of a, a beautiful poem that for some reason I mistakenly remembered as being in the same Vincent malaise it's actually Sarah Teesdale and it's um, it's barter uh, which is a word that Adam Smith liked a lot mm-hmm. and it's uh it's not about swapping um, corn for uh, for um, for beef it's uh, a different kind of barter but again that makes it to me all the more about economics and Sarah Teesdale writes Life has loveliness loveliness to sell, all beautiful and splendid things, blue waves whitened on a cliff, soaring fire that sways and sings, and children's faces looking up, holding wonder like a cup. It goes on for two more verses. I'm not going to read it. I'll put a link up to it. But the idea that you can acquire pleasure in life and satisfaction and joy by doing one thing and not the other is what that, that poem is about. But... I, when you talked about filling time rather than marking it, I thought about that image of holding wonder like a cup. The idea of filling your cup, filling your life with wonder, uh, just struck me as a, it's a good, it's a good guidepost.
1: It's, it's wonderful. And it seems to me an opportunity that is open to anyone. One of the, the things that has happened to me is that when you when you undergo chemotherapy, you have some days that are, are just horrible. When you, It's very hard to describe the side effects of chemotherapy. It, it feels as if you've been beaten up. It's not just that you can't summon the energy to do something. You, you can't summon the will to do it. So there are days when I'm unable to read. I, I can't hold a book. But one thing I can always do is listen to music. I, I, I'm not particularly musical. I don't have a good musical sense. So I've been relying on friends. My friend Terry Teachab, for instance, urged me to get some Jimmy Ruffin, a blues singer. And he, as Terry knew he would, listening to him lifted my spirits. I've been, I've started to explore the world of music in a way that I hadn't since I was an undergraduate. Definitely a low key celebration of being alive. It's something that I've I've urged my mother in law, who is a I think the the technical term is a treatment resistant depressive, who had been complaining that she can't read fiction because she becomes too emotionally involved. And I said to her, Ema, that's but that's exactly what you want. <laughs> the you, you, the fiction is is returning you to life yet yeah. it's, it's making you uncomfortable but that's because it's it's awakening emotions that are dormant it's a low key celebration yeah. of being alive
0: yeah but to me those low keys are they some of them are the highest moments uh absolutely they're, they're about the savoring and i want to i want to push us a little bit in the direction of literature and we'll, we'll come back to life and cancer in a minute but my segue is the is the following in the last few years, uh, knowing your situation, uh, what literature have you been drawn to? Uh, anything outside your regular patterns? Um, you're a big reader. You're a voracious reader. Um, anything new in the last few years because
1: of I, where you are? I, where you are? Well, I don't know if it's because of where I'm. Now, of course, I've for professional reasons since I'm writing a book on living with cancer. I've been I've been doing a lot of reading in cancer memoirs. As I quipped on Twitter today, cancer memoirs, I'm afraid, are like golf tournaments on TV. Only those who already have the disease are interested in them. But So I've been reading those, but that's for professional reasons. One of the unexpected swerves that my reading has taken in recent months has been into Catholic fiction. I happened, I think, just serendipity when I was... Reviewing for commentary. I happened upon two different novels by two young Catholic novelists, Christopher Bea and William Giraldi, both of whom have become email friends. And they both wrote wonderful first novels and then even better second novels that I just reviewed for books and culture. And one of the things that was so impressive about Bea and Giraldi is that they had chosen to go in a new direction. They they didn't see Flannery O'Connor as their obvious literary precursor.
0: Or Graham Greene.
1: Uh, no, for for Bea, it was Graham Greene. Oh, yeah. Though you'd be surprised how little purchase Graham Greene has on the contemporary literary imagination. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's British. Yeah, and, he he, and he's religious. Him. Yeah, and, <laughs> right. And all, but also Muriel Spark. Uh-huh. So Bea and Giraldi got me to read and reread graham green and muriel spark i've just pretty much i'm always in my reading i'm a completist it's one of the things you can do in life you can read the complete works of somebody and i've read all of muriel spark now and uh, except for his entertainments, most of Graham Greene, and that's something I never would have predicted that I would have I would have gotten this fascination with Catholic fiction. It's is- true. One of my my closest buddies back at Texas A and M is a devout Catholic, and we always yak up religion. But I, I I never would have expected to become this sort of public advocate for Catholic fiction.
0: Do you reread? Absolutely. What are? Give me five books or so that you read. You've read more than once or maybe more than that. Lolita more than twice,
1: okay? Lolita and that in their warm up you ask what's you said one question you wouldn't ask is what's the greatest novel of the past century? It's it's Lolita. I re like I'll take 5. Give me 5. <laughs> okay, well like Lionel Trilling said about Huckleberry Finn, I I reread it every year. Hmm. Um uh other novels uh, my probably my favorite novel I wouldn't say it's the best novel. Is Philip Roth's American Pastoral. Uh, I before I got sick also had hoped to, to write an intellectual biography of Roth, and now Claudia Roth Pierpoint has has come out with one, so I don't have to do it. Uh, but if I had to reread one Roth, it would always be American Pastoral. And similarly, I, since I named a son after him, Saul Bellow. And the the Bellow I always reread is Mr. Samler's Planet, a a novel that is not dissimilar from American Pastoral. There are two examples of what I call the Jewish talking novel. I
0: struggle to like Bellow. I I find him – I find him disappointing and I was interested. I noticed you said – I saw you rave in print about Mr. Samler's Planet. I've not read that. I've read um, a couple others Um, and – didn't love either of them. Uh, just liked them. They're okay. They, they interest me. They don't, they don't grab me. Who else do you like? Who else would you well, put in your top ten?
1: Well, here I'm going to mention two obscure novels because part of my, my goal in life is to get people to read novels that have been forgotten. Richard P. Brickner's novel Tickets, 1982, I want to say. that. May, no, that's too late maybe 78. I, the, the, I don't have it in front of me. Tickets is a novel about opera, and it's adultery, but it's not an adultery novel. It is a wholly persuasive account of a love affair with, without any gag factor. Uh, wonderfully and sparingly written, although there's, like anything Brickner wrote, uh, always has the the wonderful maxims and epigrams, too. And the other is a personal favorite that I've been after the New York Review Books classic series to reprint with, of course, an afterward by me, is Thomas Gallagher's Una O, which is 50 years old this summer. Una O is a wonderful novel about an Irish girl, Irish-American girl, who ends up pregnant from a love affair, uh, delivers her own child in Italy, and carves out an incredible, hence the O in her name. I mean, her name's obviously from Una O'Neill, but nevertheless, she's Una O'Hagan. But everyone calls her Una O because she's entirely self-sufficient and the the most charming heroine I know in literature.
0: Uh, you can briefly mention, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you can Briefly mention a few overrated novels. I know you're not a big fran- fan of Beloved. You've written about that. Uh, any others you want to add to the list? You're, you're strikingly honest for a modern literary critic. It seems to me that most uh, book reviews in America today are are raves, other than politically incorrect books or people with bad attitudes that, that don't make the cut at the New York Times Book Review. Uh, you you have never been shy about being um, scathing about bad books. You want to throw in a couple. Oh, yeah, gloved. so I'd be,
1: I'd be glad to. I, we could, I don't uh, want
0: to spend the rest of the time on it. I know, until, I know, so couple. I'll just rattle off names.
1: Jonathan Franzen, very much overrated. Um, um, uh, uh, John Irving. Uh, no one should ever read another John Irving novel. It's long past his sell-by date. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to include Updike because Updike is rapidly disappearing from the literary culture. Nobody reads many anymore pardon
0: nobody reads it. I
1: loved him I, exactly. as a
0: as a short story writer when i was in in college i never could get into his novels and most people can't either it, is, it seems
1: Right. It's at, so let me take him off the list because oh. I do believe <laughs> the rabbit novels Don't are f- worth are worth reading. Okay. Uh, I have been on the warpath against the Library of America recently, which has made I think the indefensible decision to include popular writers like Elmore Leonard. I, I'm sorry, Elmore Leonard died last year. He died. On the same day that J.F. Powers' letters were published, and it was typical for the great J.F. Powers that he should be eclipsed by a writer who was a quarter of his stature. And now I find that Library of America is doing a two-volume Elmore Leonard. All of Elmore Leonard is in print. There is no reason for a Library of America – He's no James Cain. Let, let's be honest. And <laughs> he's
0: no Raymond Chandler, no, who the not. Library
1: of America already has. I know,
0: but I, I like Lynn. I bet your wife likes him too. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lovely entertainer.
1: He is a, he is an entertainer. There is no reason that he needs to be permanently preserved Enschrined. in a library, especially <laughs> when, and this is the one I always agitate for, Peter DeVries, the great comic novelist of the 50s and 60s, is entirely out of print yeah. except for uh, two volumes.
0: Yeah. Uh, Talk about the, um, the state of reading in America. Uh, there's – in many ways, it's the greatest time in human history to be a reader. Uh, there's tons of stuff available. Amazon gives everybody the world's greatest bookstore pretty close to their fingertips, if not their eyeballs, uh, with the Kindle. Uh, and yet you feel like nobody, especially young people, reads anymore. They're too busy um, watching YouTube, a problem I have from time to time myself. Uh, are you pessimistic about the book?
1: No, no, because one of my experiences as a book blogger and literary critic is to have made contact with people who are desperately hungry, not just for books, but for book discussion. They are not academics. They're not part of the literary republic, but and they're and they're not. Book addicts in the sense that they light up one from the butt end of another. They are desperately hungry for good books. And I have received so many email messages from people thanking me for my recommendations of of out-of-the-way novels that they have just loved. I think there will always be a minority of people who live to read rather than read to live.
0: It feels like it's shrinking, but I guess it's never been terribly large, uh, for 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 that matter. Uh, it's certainly true that access is just unparalleled. Uh, libraries don't have as many books as they used to, but but Barnes and Noble is like a giant library. People go in and they they go take a book out. At least no, no, bu-
1: public libraries are uh, are a scandal. They are now under – they operate under the ideology that if a book hasn't been checked out for five years, it's removed from general circulation and sold at one of their great book sales. And instead, and instead, what public libraries have now are their most recent bestsellers. So you yeah. don't have to go to Barnes and & Noble. And a bunch of internet get,
0: terminals to go check right. your email.
1: Yeah. right. And I, I, I don't understand – I grew up in Riverside, California and went to the public library. My mother used to take us to the public library once a week, and I can remember the thrill, uh, almost the pornographic thrill, of sneaking into the adult fiction section. Mm-hmm. I read Moby i read Moby Dick when I was in the fifth grade because I thought I was getting away with something. I, and I, 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 I'm not sure that young people can have that experience anymore.
0: I did this – I actually read it at 10 also. Uh and I've not read it since. Uh, oh, I don't think really? I got much out of it. <laughs> I didn't. It wasn't anything sneaky about it. it. Just seemed like a good adult book, and I liked the the woodcut on the cover
1: of Ahab.
0: Right. Uh, would you recommend I go back to it?
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. You you have to have your um your nonsense detector because. <laughs> um, the, let's say the whale is not the only one with a blowhole um, <laughs> but uh, but that's part of the charm of the book it's capacious it's it's, it's it, there's room to stretch in that book and so if there there are things that you skip there are things you skip yeah. I, I i like the uh the the formulas grandiosity of that book
0: so i have to ask you another uh, reading habit question which is uh, when I was younger, I felt I had to finish every book I started. It took me a long time to get over that habit. Do you finish every book you start or oh, do you no. drop in the midstream?
1: And when did that oh, sp- Unless I have the professional responsibility yeah. of reviewing it. Um, no, there are uh, there are many books and books I think I will like. Um, though I must admit they tend to be more my wife's mysteries, the things she recommends to me that I just can't get through because of, of bad writing. Uh But absolutely, I, I think that the choice not to continue reading a book is a critical decision. That is, you're 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 offering your verdict on the book.
0: And your scarce time, which you need to use wisely. I, I should mention, by the way, that we talked about your wife's reading habits before uh, we started recording, I think, and that my oh, presumption oh. that she liked Elmer Leonard was not a form of um, – extrasensory perception. Um, <laughs> now, you wrote a, an interesting, um, very unusual uh, book on the history of the teaching of creative writing in American universities, it's something I'd never thought about before. It's, it's an interesting idea. The title of that book is The Elephants
1: Teach. Talk about the title
0: of that book and your view of creative writing.
1: Well, it's, the title is from an anecdote, uh, probably apocryphal, when Vladimir Nabokov, was being considered for a position in English at Harvard, the linguist Roman Jakobson objected and said, what's next? Shall we hire elephants to teach zoology? So the theme of my book is that the hiring of writers is in fact the hiring of the elephants to teach zoology. I do not have a high opinion of creative writing as it exists now. The original idea of, crea- of creative writing was a brilliant one. Creative writing was actually the marriage of r- the writing of fiction, poetry, and drama to the writing of literary criticism. Uh, it, it, it owes its existence to the late 20s and early 30s and was pioneered by men and women like Alan Tate and Caroline Gordon who who wrote both. Fiction and criticism. It ha- creative writing, however, has devolved into, and here we're back to economics, and perhaps the only original economic argument I've ever made. Creative writing is now a bureaucracy, which exists to promote its own interests at the expense of the general public. Mm-hmm. C- creative writers only read one another. The, the lack of a knowledge of literary tradition is striking uh i mentioned two young writers christopher bea and william giraldi Billy teaches in the creative writing uh, program at boston u but but chris works for harper's and they both strike me as being outside of the creative writing milieu partly because they're interested in their predecessors creative writing classes i and i studied creative writing with the great raymond carver Creative writing classes and Carver's classes were no different. You sit around in a circle and you read one another's work. And then you talk about it. Right.
0: <laughs> I, 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 tw- I tweeted yesterday, and I, I think you retweeted it, uh, the poem workshop, which I'll put a link up to by Billy Collins, which is, I think, a masterpiece in – It is wonderful. In describing uh, what's wrong with uh, that class in university.
1: It is just, it's just amazing that <laughs> the thought that a 18, 19 year old or, okay, let's they've graduated, 22 year old who is not Flannery O'Connor. Now, Flannery O'Connor went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and, and I will give creative writing Flannery O'Connor. But other than she, and that's of course, a, that's even, a small, even her, it,
0: it's a small numerator, it's uh, yeah. a big denominator.
1: Well, and even her immature stories are, well, immature. Uh, to, to assume that that their their stories can support a discussion longer than thirty seconds, which is don't publish this, is as, is as, as prep- preposterous, especially when classroom time is so limited and we have so little time to to talk about great writing with students. Yeah, uh, English departments, as you know, are now in the business. Of junking the literary tradition anyway, and so now we have two wings of the English department: both the critics and the writers who are uninterested in literary tradition. I don't know who the writers think will be reading them in two generations, and maybe they just don't care.
0: Well, it seems to me the blogosphere is the natural, much of it is the natural outcome of the creative writing urge, uh, which is um, it's a beautiful idea that everybody's a writer, everybody has something to say, which is no doubt true. But it's also true that not everybody wants to read it and some people are better than others. So uh, there is a certain self-indulgence in the modern creative writing uh, phenomenon, um, which uh, is, as you really are saying, it comes at a cost. That There are other things that might be more, more useful my, to both students and, and the world. But my, my take on it, and I'd like your reaction to this, is that uh, there's very little teaching that goes on. In those classes, uh, I took I took creative writing. I took three creative writing classes actually, uh, and one was the one that I remember and cherish was with Doris Betts at the University of North Carolina. she's a she's a very nice writer. Um, has now passed away, but uh, I w- I was inspired by that class and because of her persona. But I don't, I'm not sure she taught me very much about how to be a better writer. But she did have an impact on me. I don't want to minimize that. And yet in most classes, it strikes me that there's very little instruction. And I was uh, given the opportunity at George Mason to teach a class on how to write economics for a general audience, uh, a class that, that for graduate students, probably the only class like that maybe in America. And I struggle with it. How? Do, what do I do besides talk about these things? How do I teach it? And I got a wonderful piece of advice from Orson Scott Card who's the science fiction writer whose uh, path I crossed. And he said, don't grade people on how they write. Grade them on how they critique each other. And his, <coughs> his idea, which is genius, and it helped. And I, I, I put it into practice as best I could. And I think if I'd done it longer, I would have gotten better at it. But his idea was, if you want to improve your writing, you have to be a better editor. You have to hear the voice <coughs> inside your head, the reader over your shoulder. And so what you can do to become a better writer is to become a better editor. So by editing and responding to other people's flaws, it'll help you see your own. I don't know if that's true. I think it could be, and it's by far the best thing I've ever heard about how to teach people to write better. Instead, what we're doing, and it's not just creative writing. It's in English in high school and, and middle school. You know, you give a kid back an, an essay with some red marks on it and say, here, read these and learn. And that doesn't right. seem to work.
1: Right, no, it it, it does, not I could not agree more with Card and anyone who is uh, an in, what James called an inveterate fingerer of style is constantly reading with a mental blue pencil. I, I, you know, I can't read anything without without thinking, "No, this this sentence is is clunky and could have been written better." Um, I was I was really taught to. Right. Not by Raymond Carver in my creative writing classes. I also studied with the, the novelist Stanley Elkin, but by the, the great poet and critic J.V. Cunningham. And I took one, one and only one course with Cunningham in graduate school. He was a visiting professor and he taught the history of literary criticism. And more than anything, it was not just Cunningham's persona, like Doris Batts, but And this was, as I say in my book, the original idea of creative writing. Cunningham embodied his entire literary practice in everything he did. So he was, he believed furiously in the plain style and exemplified the plain style even in his conversation. Mm -hmm. Great epigrammatist. But an even greater scholar, and I once, I once asked Cunningham. I went to his office. He couldn't get rid of me, <laughs> and I, I, I said to him, well, well, why? At some point, he, he more or less stopped writing poetry, and he only did scholarship. And I, I asked him why, and he said, it is the more worth doing, hmm. or perhaps said the more needed. And I've always, you know, I, I. When I was a kid wanted to be a fiction writer and realized that writing criticism was the more needed, the more worth doing. And that, that I think that the embodiment of this, this insistence upon getting things exactly right as plainly as possible has, has driven my writing ever since. Um, a friend of mine, the, the wonderful critic Catherine A. Powers, who just won the Nona Balakian Award from the National Book Critics Circle, um, said to me, and I, speaking for both of us, that, that what we are after is a style that is preternaturally clear. So if you put those,
0: it's not so in this fashion. all together, it's not in right, fashion. Orson,
1: Orson, <laughs> Orson Card would say that what you need is a, a perfectly internalized editor. Who is constantly editing you to be preternaturally clear, with Cunningham's passion for exactitude?
0: Well, I love that, but we're not um, we're not in the mainstream. And I, I, I'm just going to pick a writer who I love, who I think is underappreciated, and I get and get your reaction. And that's Somerset Mom. I, I can't read his novels. I've read them. I, I didn't like them much, but I think his short stories are, are spectacular. And there's nothing, not a single bit of flashiness about them.
1: He is I merely, I, I, he is no, merely I, 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 a great I, I, unlike storyteller. I you I unlike you I, I actually like his novels. I think Cakes and Ale is the single best thing ever written about the literary life.
0: Yeah, I don't remember Cakes and Ale. I just remember his two famous, you know, C- no one reads C- them anymore of Human Bondage and The Razor's Edge. Um Right. Oh,
1: go back and go and read Cakes Cakes and Ale. It's about a uh, it's about a, a popular writer based on Hugh Walpole. And an unpopular writer, um or a how should I say, an exacting craftsman, who is obviously modeled on Mom, and the their um, their their acquaintanceship with the second Mrs. Thomas Hardy. Now Thomas Hardy is given a different name in the book, but it's it's wonderful to see one of them trying to cash in on the renown of the second Mrs. Thomas Hardy. And the first one, although, of course, in essence, sense this is a Romana Clay, Mom is, in his own way, cashing in on it. It's also, and much more deeply, a uh, a send-up of the, the literary log roller, the, the person who is who's simply trying to, to trade on fame. Wonderful novel.
0: Nope, but, not but flashy. Do, but do you agree but, with my point that, yes. that that he's been discarded because he's merely a great storyteller, which is no longer valued very highly? Whereas I think it's the maybe the the single best virtue that I mean his stories are so perfectly crafted. His anecdotes, his his I mean, he has a book that no one's no one reads called The Gentleman in the Parlor that is utterly charming, and it's full of these perfectly crafted set pieces uh, of of storytelling that that he did uh, better than anybody.
1: So you don't know Anthony Daniels quip about mom. No. To to confess a liking for mom is among the literate no different than a loss of caste among the Indians. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean it's been it's long been no different. A mom to confess a liking for mom is to uh is to tear your pants in polite literary company. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um just quickly, we're out of time, but just quickly, uh, you did a lot of teaching. Uh, talk about the transformation in the American University over the 25 years of teaching that, that you did and uh, your sense of it.
1: Well, t- two main ones. The first I've already touched on, though, in different terms. But the contemporary university is principally an administrative bureaucracy or a bureaucracy of administrators who are primarily interested in protecting their own turf uh, without – any interest in the taxpayers who, who support state universities, the scholars who contribute to the world of learning, or for or last of all, students who are there to get an education. Um, I, I've taught at two football hmm. factories, Texas A&M and Ohio State, and I am, although I hate the athletic departments, love the athletes. And and think it's tragic what it's done to athletes. I, I'm much more incensed by the neglect of undergraduates and the the, the complete disdain of anything that would improve teaching. And, and, the, and the second change has been in English departments, where if we if I belong to a generation that went into teaching English because talk about heresy. We loved literature and had been trained i went to graduate school at a time when it was assumed that if nothing else you knew Ch- Chaucer Shakespeare and Milton it is now possible to graduate from many universities in this country without ever taking a, in, with a degree in english without ever taking a course in shakespeare sure i, I, I it's astonishing to me i wrote a piece for inside higher ed that, that about not not having my contract renewed at, at Ohio State and one of the things that I think has escaped the notice of my fellow English professors is that now that we have made nothing indispensable to the study of English all of us English professors are dispensable because none of us teach an indispensable subject the the shakespeare scholar can be gotten rid of because Studying Shakespeare is no longer indispensable. We have sacrificed any idea that there's a common tradition. When I say that, I am misunderstood to be calling for a reimposition of the canon. I don't think the canon ever existed to begin with. But we don't we don't even argue about what a common tradition might include. Nor, when we teach something, do we ever make the case. That this is indispensable to the learning of a young person. We just teach our hobbies. We just think- teach what whatever interests us this month.
0: So I happen to I happen to love Shakespeare, and I've I've taken my kids to to many Shakespeare <clears throat> performances. Uh, make the case for it. I, I I think it's indispensable as part of being an educated, civilized human being. But. I, I'm sure many of our listeners wouldn't agree. Do you, do, can you make a case for that? How would you make the case for that?
1: Well, again, in two ways. The first is, uh, borrowing from E.D. Hirsch's idea of cultural literacy, you just can't speak the English language and not be indebted to Shakespeare, which means that the more Shakespeare you know, the the better your speech is, not just because... Shakespeare is a, offers a wealth of allusions, but because he is, he is the perfect example of how to use the English language with mellifluous exactitude. The second is that there is nothing in the picture of man which is not included in Shakespeare. Now I recognize that we no longer study man. And even to use that word is to identify myself as being a dinosaur. A dinosaur. Shame
0: on you. <laughs> but, but, but it's true. But when, when a man has cancer, he's allowed a certain latitude. In his, <laughs> exactly. In his exactly. Opinions. So
1: so everybody's not. It's dying. part of my preternatural honesty. There you to go. go back to that. Yeah. But, but I, I'm serious. If, if you had to restrict your study of man to one author, Shakespeare would be the one you would choose. Well,
0: I. I agree with that. I, I think your first point, I'm not sure it's it, it's true in the sense that to know that neither a borrower nor a lender be is, um, you know, from Hamlet's uh, polonious advice to Laertes is as good at cocktail parties. I don't think you have to know where it comes from to learn the lesson. Learning the lesson, which I think is where I take your second point about human nature, seems to me to be the, the value of Shakespeare. But, you know, the critic could argue, well, we get it elsewhere. There are other places to we get it in the psychology department.
1: You want to comment on that? Well, (laughs) I I, again am a dinosaur and believing in human greatness and learning from those who are greater than we. uh, It's certainly what informed my teaching. I I was stupid enough or behindhand enough to believe that the writers I taught had something to say to us, which is why we should study them, Uh, not to expose the sins of racism and colonialism. But because they're wiser and, by God, smarter than we are, Um, which is why I – as much as he's been devalued in the practice of psychology, I would say that every undergraduate needs to study Freud because Freud belongs to the human heritage now.
0: I agree. I agree, though. I know virtually nothing about Freud, but I agree with – I'll I'll take the point. my natural bias against psychology, which was came from my father, who had a master's degree in it, and scared me <laughs> away from from studying it for most of my life. I've gotten a little into it as I've gotten older. Well, we're we're out of time. I want you to let's 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 come back where we started. Um, I want to I want to put you on the soapbox and let you close. Uh, we've had a lot of interesting advice here about uh, Shakespeare and uh, Melville, but uh, talk talk more generally and uh, sum up your advice for people with cancer and without. Uh,
1: that, that really is putting me on the, the spot. Um, I, I, I place before you today death and life, therefore choose life. I, I don't know a, a stronger message that everything that we do, everything we are aware of choosing to do should contribute to life. It, it, it's it's not a matter of using our time productively. I, I don't even think that is good economic language. But rather, choosing to do whatever enhances life will end up enhancing life. The best way, perhaps, to put it is, in literary terms, which is the way I, I think of putting it since since I'm a writer... I have a book manuscript out right now that is, is called, um, The Moral Obligation to Write Well. A phrase, by the way, which was coined by an, econo- an, an economist. I'll have to uh, look up who it was for you. If, if for a writer, the moral obligation is to write well, then I would say that the moral obligation for all of us is is to live well.
0: Yep, and use our use our gifts and time as best we can, and not uh, not to miss those opportunities, which are um, they're fleeting. Every second is fleeting. Absolutely, my guest today has been DG Myers. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Good talking to you.